in Colossians chapter 1, we looked last week at a short passage of Scripture, but so significant, so significant to the teaching of God and to the teaching of Christ as we looked in uh, verses 15 through 20. And the first handout that I passed out this morning is on what we talked about through that. So you can kind of take that and do your own study back through that. Um, But we have to see what Paul is doing. And what he's doing is trying to ground and create a firm foundation for the Colossian believers in Jesus Christ. Because that ultimately is where our hope is. That is who our faith is founded in. And so he's trying to just zero in on Jesus And he's doing this before we get to what we're going to talk about today. And that is false teachers coming in, saying things that sound religious, saying things that sound like they will lead to holiness, giving instruction and a way of believing that would seem to lead to people having a more fulfilled religious life. But ultimately, it was leading people away from Jesus. And I'm going to be very honest, the more I read, the more I watch, the more I listen to other ministries, the more I hear more emphasis on good things, good things that we can do, uh, you know, types of philosophies. I hear a lot of in the church today, a lot of self-help that mentions the name of Jesus along the way, but I'm hearing more and more of a lack of the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ for our lives. And that's very concerning. And even ministries that, you know, I've listened to over and over again, I begin to see and hear differently today because I hear a lot of good advice, a lot of good philosophy, a lot of, yeah, you can do it, but is it truly preaching the gospel and the death, burial, and resurrection and our death, burial, and resurrection with him and our total dependence upon Jesus Christ? For at the end of the day, it is the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation. It's not our own self-discipline. It's not our own religious works. It's not how much we believe in ourselves. It's not even the good things that we try to do in our lives while those things may play a part, it's not the foundation. And to be moved away from the hope of our foundation is to move away from Christ. And, um, and I know from experience and talking with others, you start to move a little bit from Christ and then a little bit, a little bit. And before you know it, it opens the door to a lot of other things that end up being contrary to Christ. So the thing I pray for in the church today is discernment, that people would discern what they're hearing. They would, they would discern what is the gospel based upon the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ versus other things. And I'm not saying that, I mean, there there are things that can encourage you. Um, There are, you know, self-help advice that could encourage you and be a help. There's practical advice. So if something encourages you, that's great. But It's one thing to say, this is what the Bible says, and this is what the Bible means, and this is the gospel. We should never never mix the two, but keep them uh, in perspective. 
And first and foremost, build our life upon the gospel and not let any extra biblical thing move us away from our hope that is in Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul is trying to do. And the more we live and the more the world goes, the less things change. Uh, You just put different faces on it. They're brought in different ways. They're packaged differently. Uh, But some of the same things that the Colossians deal with here, we deal with in our world and in our context today. So we looked at verses 15 through 20 last week um, that talks about Jesus being the creator. He wasn't the created being. He was the creator. He was before all things. He's the head of the body, the church. All of the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the image of the invisible God. We talked about what that meant. And then we looked at how Christ reconciled the Colossians to himself and how Christ reconciles us to himself by the death on the cross and his resurrection. And that is the gospel that Paul said has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and that Paul himself has been made a servant of. So that's what we looked at in verses 15 through about 23. Uh, Paul goes on to talk about his labor from the church to finish out uh, chapter number one and his work with the Gentiles. Now let's get into Colossians chapter 2. Let's get into Colossians chapter 2. The first five verses, Paul is still kind of dealing with this thought about his work in the mystery of the gospel. Um, and how the gospel was revealed to the Gentiles. Uh, He says in verse number 2 of Colossians chapter 2, he says, My goal is that they may uh, be encouraged in heart, united in love, that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and and knowledge. So while we may seek wisdom in many places, while we, meet, while we may seek understanding in many philosophies, in many religions, and many people do seek understanding in various different places, Paul declares that the greatest mystery of the universe that we could ever discover is Christ. And the mystery that many people are looking for is actually found in Christ. And in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's a powerful statement that Paul is making here. And then he's going to go on to elaborate on something that is the opposite of the mystery of Christ with all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge hidden in Him. So in verse number 6, this is where we're going to start on our paper here, the one that starts out with Colossians 2, 6 through 23. Paul begins in verse number 6. Let me read to you what Colossians 2, 6 says. It says, So then, based on everything he's just said, going back to chapter 1, verse 15, where he begins, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Christ created everything. He's the head of the church. He's reconciled all things. He's reconciled you in Christ or hidden all the mysteries of knowledge and wisdom. So then, because of all of that, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, chapter 2, verse 6, continue to live your lives in Him, 
rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So the first thing that Paul does here in verse number six, he spent much time in chapter one emphasizing who Christ is to the Colossian believers and who they are. They're reconciled to God through Christ and the gospel. Now he encourages them to remain faithfully anchored to Christ. Remain firm in Jesus. Let your hope continue to be in the gospel. Remember, he encouraged them in in chapter 1 to hold on to this hope of the gospel. Do not be moved away. Continue in it. That's how you receive everything from it, is to continue in it, not to be moved away from it. So he's saying that this will ground their lives and they will be strengthened and built up and rooted in Christ. Then in verse number 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow philosophy or hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ. Now, verse 8, that's a mouthful. Verse 8 is a mouthful. So he's grounded them in who Christ is. Now he's going to show them what other people are trying to teach them. This is who Christ is. Be rooted and grounded, build up and establish in him. But now beware. Because there's going to come people that are going to say good things that sound godly. It might be good advice. It might seem that it's going to make you more holy or take you to a higher spiritual plane, but beware because it is not rooted on the Christ of the Bible. So he's telling them, now that I've told you who Christ is, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than on Christ. So we're going to break down some of these words that we have here. So on our paper this morning, uh, the first thing that we see under verse number eight is see to it that no one takes you captive. See to it that no one takes you captive. Paul here warns against any attempt to lead the Colossian believers captive through false teaching and belief. So while there may be a semblance of freedom... You can be better. You can be more holy. Paul says it's really taking you as a captive. He says that they are in danger of being carried off into a form of religious captivity. Now, again, they're not preaching to be godless. They're not preaching to go out and sin. They're not preaching to go out and indulge in fleshly things. In fact, it's the exact opposite They're preaching, don't go do these things. Don't indulge in the flesh. Have a deeper spiritual experience with visions and angels. They're not saying go out and be godless. They're, They're in essence saying go out and be more godly. And here's the way to be more godly. And that's what's deceptive about it. Because we think false teachers would come in to try to get us to sin. But no, these false teachers are coming in teaching a form 
of godliness, but denying the power thereof. So it seems right. It sounds right. It sounds good. It it feels good to our flesh. And ultimately, all this stuff actually feeds our egos instead of us dying to self and submitting to Jesus Christ. So this is a form of religious captivity and must be on alert so that they do not become prey of those who wish to rob them of their freedom and their true freedom in Christ. So he says, see to it no one takes you captive. Now he breaks down all of the different parts. And in our introduction two weeks ago, we looked at, it it was hard for, you know, theologians to really break down exactly what this, what this one teaching or heresy is. That is more of a mixture of a couple of different things. So we'll just break down each phrase. The first thing he says is that they will take you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. Hollow and deceptive philosophy. Again, this teaching was not to lead them into a godless or immoral way of life, but to blend the highest elements of religion known to Judaism and paganism. Part of this, it seems, would come from the pagan world. Other parts of this would seem to come from the Jewish world. So again, it's not godless. It's the highest form of different religions. This vain philosophy would seduce believers from the simplicity of their faith in Christ. It is deceptive because it comes looking like something holy and spiritual. It may sound right, but it is not teaching the gospel. It is deceptive philosophy. It is deceptive teaching. So it may sound right, it may look good, it may be packaged right, it may be said by somebody who preaches truth, maybe said by somebody who's very you know, charismatic in their teaching and very uh, attractive and draws people in. But when you examine this philosophy, you'll find that it is an empty illusion of truth. And I'm sure I've probably been guilty of this at one point in time or another, but I've been listening to people and I've been excited and it sounds great and it gets you pumped up and then you leave and you're like, what did they say? They talked and they talked and they talked and they screamed and they yelled and they did theatrics, but they didn't say anything. And it draws you in, but it gives you no truth to keep you and to ground you in the gospel. It's an empty illusion of truth. That's why we must compare everything to the scriptures, everything to what is revealed through people like Paul as he's trying to protect the Colossians from certain types of teaching. So it's hollow and it's deceptive. And then he says, it is dependent upon human tradition. Verse 8, it's dependent upon human tradition. It's not based on the revealed word of God, but upon human tradition, human ideas. Uh, We're biblically most associate human tradition with Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. For the Pharisees would often charge Jesus' disciples with not following the traditions of the elders. You know, why are they doing this on the Sabbath day? How come they don't wash their hands after they do this? How come they don't do this? They're not following the tradition of the elders, is what the scribes and the Pharisees would come to Jesus with. Uh, And I've listed here a couple of scriptures in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. It says, Then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, 
Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands when they eat bread. But Jesus answered and said to them, Why do you transgress the commandment of God by your tradition? And then in verses 8 and 9, Jesus says, This people draws near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So again, the problem with the Pharisees is not that they were teaching godless doctrine and teaching, but is that they were teaching something contrary to the word of God. And then in Mark chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says about them that they were making the word of God of none effect through their traditions. They were making the word of God null and void through their tradition, which you have delivered and many such like things do they do. So Jesus came against the tradition of the elder. He didn't come against the word of God or the commandment of God. He's saying they were canceling out the commandment of God and the word of God through their earthly and human traditions and rules. For the Pharisees, they, they would take the law of God and it wasn't just the, what we call the Torah that they believed in. There was other books. There was the Mishnah. There was the Talmud. And these were writings of rabbis in later times. And the rabbis would interpret the scripture and they would make their own interpretation law. They would add things to God's law, add extra rules, make things say what they wanted it to say, and they would write it down, and they would say, this is just as important as God's word. And they would bring people captive because of it. So Jesus is coming against that human tradition. And, and Paul says here in Colossians that it's based on human tradition, not on the word of God. The next thing he mentions in verse number eight is depends on human tradition and on the, the interesting term here, elemental Spiritual forces is what uh, NIV says. The King James may say the rudiments of the world. You know, we probably don't use elemental forces and rudiments in our everyday life. Not to be confused with like rutabagas and things like that. Um, but it's, it's totally different. So elemental forces here you see on your paper. It's a Greek word, storkia. And it simply means first principles or basic principles. First principles or basic principles. Kind of like when you go to school, you learn A, B, C, D, E. You learn the alphabet. That's the first, the basic principles. Uh, well, when Paul, Paul uses this word in one other passage of Scripture, and that's in Galatians chapter 4. When Paul used this word, the elemental spiritual forces or the rudiments in Galatians, he used it to refer to the law. In Galatians, the stoichia are the forces which regulated Jewish life under Jewish law. It's what they would learn. It's, it's the first principles of Judaism. It is the law. And so Paul uses this word in Galatians chapter 4 to mean the law. And some of the Galatians and the Jewish believers were trying to return and go back to these elemental spiritual forces, back to the law. Um, and he says there that part of that was returning to the Jewish calendar. It was returning to circumcision, returning to the Jewish food laws. So Paul says here in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, he says, Now I say that the heir, as long as he's a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he's the Lord of all, 
but is under tutors and governors. That's the law he's talking about. The law was the tutors and governors that guided them and taught them while they were still children. Uh, But is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that they may receive adoption as sons. So Paul said, we were once, as Jews, we were once under these elemental, elementary forces, these basic principles, these, these rudiments. But then, when Christ came, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Then he goes on to say in Galatians 4, 9, But now, after you have known God, or are known of God, how turn you again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto you desire to be in bondage? You observe days and months and times and years. He's saying, now that you've been set free by Christ, why are you going back to these weak elemental forces that bring you in bondage to the Jewish calendar? and the Jewish laws. So there's no doubt that Paul, when he's speaking here in Colossians about these elemental spiritual forces, are speaking of primarily the same thing. So again, we see that there is a, you know, a Jewish element, there's a mystical element, there's a pagan element as well. But that's the elementary spiritual forces that Paul uses here. So he lists those three things that we just saw, human tradition, the set of philosophy, elementary forces of the world. And he says, these are teachings on all of those things, not on Christ. And that's how he ends verse 8, rather than on Christ. This teaching is not Christ-centered. The gospel is Christ-centered. Christ being the creator of the world is Christ-centered. Christ sustaining the world is Christ-centered. christ reconciling the world is Christ-centered. Christ being the head of the church is Christ-centered. Christ making you alive when you were dead in trespasses and sins is Christ-centered. Christ being the treasure of of true wisdom and understanding is Christ-centered. Human tradition, vain philosophy, and returning to the elementary principles of the law is not Christ-centered. So he says, these are based on all those things, but not Christ-centered. And that's the problem. So in verses 9 through 15, he kind of gets away from the description of the heresy. He'll come back to it in verse 16. But he kind of goes away from it to talk about Christ. So again, he puts Christ before he talks about the heresy in chapter 1. He puts Christ right in the middle of talking about the heresy here in verses 9 through 15. And he puts it after. He puts Christ after in chapter 3 from talking about this heresy. So he does not want them to leave Christ. He is grounding them in the truth of Christ. So let me read what it says here in the paper and then we'll read in the scripture. But verses 9 through 15, these are the effects of Christ, of what Christ did. Uh, On our paper, it says, Paul is showing them that Christ is all they need. Christ is all they need. He makes it plain that in Christ, 
All the fullness of God lives in bodily form. Everything you need to know about God, everything you need in God, is found in Jesus Christ. He also assures the church that they are the true circumcision. They are the true Israel of God. They are the true believers in Jesus Christ. They they are the true covenant people of God. So he assures the church that they are the true circumcision, not the Jews who had an outward circumcision. And that they, the Colossian believers, have died with Christ to all these things. They've been buried with Christ. They've been raised with Christ. And now they have been made alive unto Christ. He also shows that the law, which brought condemnation and indebtedness to it, was nailed to the cross and taken away. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that stood against us and accused us and condemned us, has been nailed to the cross and has been taken away. He then declares that Christ disarmed powers and authorities that would try to come and bring us under its power and triumphed over them at the cross. So let me, let's read together verses 9 through 15, because it's so good. And this is, we could take a whole other week to, to break down every one of these. But in verse 9 of Colossians 2, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ you have been brought to fullness. King James says, you are complete in him. Think of those words. You are complete in him. You don't have to look anywhere else. Christ, in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Notice that your whole self ruled by the flesh. Because he's going to go on to talk about how do we bring our flesh under subjection? How do we fix our fleshly desires? Human philosophy will tell us one way. Paul's telling us you fix it through identifying with Christ. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him by baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us and has taken it away, nailing it to the cross and has disarmed the powers and authorities. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So he centers everything on the cross. Everything on the cross. It's hard for me to find some other videos and curriculums and study guides that I feel happy with. Because a lot of it, again, is self-help, disguised as Christian, good advice, 
just practical things that you can do. And it's more about what I have to do to become holy, what I have to do to be a good Christian, what I have to do to overcome my flesh, what I have to do to have a good marriage, what I have to do. And I find it so difficult to teach that now. And I know People want practical teaching and they want seven steps to a happy life and they want four steps to having a great marriage. And I'm just like, Christ, Christ crucified, the cross, the Holy Spirit, relationship with him, Christ, 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 Christ. We get to the point where that becomes the elementary thing and we need something deeper and we need something better and we need something more practical to our lives. If Exactly. If, if, if you want a great marriage, you and your wife get together with Christ and the gospel. See yourselves by who you are in Christ. If you want to be a, a better person, die to yourself at the cross and pick up the life of Christ. So it's, it's just difficult for me today. But that's where Paul stays. He stays here at the cross. So everything is centered upon what Jesus has done. So right in the middle of describing this philosophy... He puts in the cross. Now in verse 16, he's going to go back to talking more about this philosophy. So he says, based on Jesus' death, based upon he forgave us, based upon he circumcised us in him, based upon we were buried with him and raised with him, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. This is going to the dietary food laws of the Jews. Or with regard to a religious festival. He's talking about the Jewish calendar. Or a new moon celebration. Or a Sabbath day. That means if you don't keep one of the Sabbath days of the Jewish calendar, they're going to try to come and judge you. He says, but because of Christ, don't let anyone judge you for those things because those things are not what it is about anymore. So let me get on our paper or I'll totally leave it. Um, Verse 16, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink in regard to a religious festival, new moon celebration, or Sabbath day. Food restrictions and Jewish holy days are involved in this teaching. The Colossian believers were being judged because they did not keep these Jewish religious holy days. Paul emphasizes that these things were only a shadow, and the reality is found in Christ. So this is what we have to understand. Everything in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. And everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So you had the sacrifices that they had to sacrifice in the Old Testament. Those sacrifices were a picture of Jesus Christ. Now that Jesus has come, we do not need to offer those sacrifices. Uh, Circumcision was a picture of what Christ would do to our hearts. We no longer have to practice that to be a part of the covenant of God. The holy days, the Sabbath days, the feast days, all of those pointed to Jesus Christ. We do not have to go back and keep those according to the law because Christ is the fulfillment. All of that is found in Christ. So he says, don't let anybody judge you on these things anymore. Because he says in verse number 17, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. Those who still focus on those things are still in the shadow. They're still in the dark. They haven't grasped the full picture of Christ. The full picture of Christ. And I like to use this example when talking about the picture of the Old Covenant. 
when Lisa and I were dating and we got engaged, you know, we, 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 we didn't live together, you know, before we, we got married, we lived separately, but we were so in love, but we couldn't be together all the time because we lived in different places. I was uh, living in Goldsboro and then in Wilson. She was living in Rocky Mount going to school. So we couldn't be together all the time. So what I did, I had a, I had a picture of her that I kept right beside my speedometer in the car. So that way when I'm driving, I could see her all the time. She would always be right there in front of me. So I'd be driving, I'd be looking at Lisa's picture. Be looking at Lisa's picture. Ah, it was very romantic. I was, I was love struck. Love struck. However, when we would, you know, when after you know, work and we'd pick each other up and we'd go out to eat or we'd go on a date, we'd go to a movie, she'd be sitting in the car beside of me. My f- I would have been foolish for my total focus and attention to be on the picture because she's sitting right beside of me. So as I was looking at the picture all throughout the day, waiting to see her, waiting to talk with her, and I'd look at that picture, when she got in the car, I didn't look at the picture anymore because the real thing was sitting beside of me. So I talked with her and I looked at her and she had my complete attention. That's what the Old Testament was. It was a picture that led us to Christ. But now that Christ is sitting right here in the seat with us, why would we just look at the picture? Why would we engage in the reality of who he is today? So that's what Paul is saying. All those things were a picture, but now you have the reality. Now Christ is here. It's no longer about the picture because the picture just pointed to Christ. So he says here, do not let anyone judge you because of that. Um, Verse number 18 of Colossians chapter 2. Verse number 18 says, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they have seen. They are puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They have lost connection with the head. So this one on our paper, do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. This is where a more mystical side of this false teaching comes in. So now you have people that aren't just strict adherence to the Jewish law. Now you have those that have this higher form of spirituality. This leads us to a more mystical religious experience based upon a false humility. They pretend to have found the way to a higher plane of spiritual experience with deeper revelations, visions, encounters with angels, secret mysteries, which give them a sense of superiority masked as humility and puffs them up, that puffs them up. And again, this is those who seek something deeper than Christ. Deeper mysteries, deeper revelation, something new that God spoke to them or, or showed them, a new revelation, a, a new vision that they had. And they live by these mystical spiritual experiences. Now, I believe in the operation of the gifts of the Spirit. I believe God still speaks to us. 
You know, I don't sit down like some people say and have conversations with him where I talk with him and he talks back and I go out and tell everybody, we, me and God had this great conversation and I heard his audible voice. But I can point you to several times in my life where I knew that that was a divine encounter with the Holy Spirit and with God. You know, I believe that God can give people a dream. I believe that God can give people a vision. I don't think those things are the norm. I think a lot of people make them the norm and a lot of things play in their head that they attribute to God um, that aren't really God. I believe people want to push them having these great deep religious experiences to make themselves look more spiritual, to make themselves seem that they're more spiritual and higher than other, and that God tells them things he doesn't tell anybody else. So that's why when it comes to these things of the Spirit, we have to be very discerning. We have to be very discerning. And honestly, the, again, the longer I'm in this, the more I try to fight the skepticism, and I just try to keep it in discernment, uh, sometimes it's very difficult. Again, very discerning, but there's just something that people want a deeper knowledge, a greater revelation, something God is doing with us that he's not doing with anybody else, and Paul warns against us. So while I do believe that we have spiritual experiences, I've had spiritual experiences. I can take you to spots you know, in different cities where I had a spiritual experience with God or I felt God's presence stronger. Many of you have shared those experiences and we thank God for them. And I think God gives us those. So at times when it is difficult, we can go back to that and our faith can be strengthened by those things. So I don't discount any of that. But if you're having those 24-7 and God speaks to you things he didn't tell anybody else and he didn't tell Paul, he didn't tell Jesus and didn't tell the Bible, yeah, I'm going to be pretty skeptical uh, about that. So be very discerning. And what it does, he said, it leads to people being puffed up, and the result is that they become disconnected from Christ. And we begin seeking the experience. The experience is great as long as the experience leads you to Christ. The problem is when we start seeking the experience, that's when it becomes dangerous. And Paul warns against that. The final thing he says, and I know this has gone long today, but there's just so much. I'm not doing a week three, by the way. We're just going to stop here and you can read the rest for yourself. Uh, but the last thing he says is in verse 20 through 30, or 20 through 23. 20 through 23 says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, don't touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, where their self-imposed worship, their false humility, their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. This, this, uh, this comes to the question, how do I curb my flesh? How do I restrain my fleshly appetites from being acted out? In this? How, how do I have victory over my flesh? How do I have victory over sin? How do I have victory over habits? How do I have victory? Well, the way that Paul says that people are telling them to have victory is by simply following the rules and regulations. Don't touch, don't taste, don't handle, don't go there, don't listen to that, don't watch that, and if you don't go here, you don't participate in that, you don't go here, then you'll be holy. 
If we don't do the things of the flesh, then we will be holy. This is called asceticism. That's a big word, asceticism. Asceticism is a severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence, typically for religious reasons. The false teachers had a system of rules, which they imposed on their followers. They said, if you keep these rules, you'll have victory over your fleshly desires. They took some of the Old Testament regulations concerning the ceremonial cleanliness and the dietary laws. They added to them, as the Pharisees had done before. So they take these rules, don't do this, don't do this. And if you do that, then, we, then you must punish yourself. I read years ago, and I didn't have time to pull up the reference, but I remember, I think it was Pope John Paul II, to maintain holiness, beat his body, and had servants beat his body so that he may remain humble, that he may remain holy, that he may remain without sin. A physical brutality, as if beating of the flesh accomplishes those things. That's asceticism. Paul opens this section by declaring that the Colossian believers have died with Christ to these things. That the Christian life is not about self-disciplined rules. It's about new life in Christ. So it's kind of like we tell our, you know, from, from the time our kids, we tell our kids what not to do. Don't go here. Don't listen to this. Don't participate in that. Don't, 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 don't. And we think by telling them to don't over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over, and over again, that that's going to work. That's how it was in my life. I was taught right and wrong from small age, but when I got old enough to do what I wanted to do, guess what I did? Yeah, I didn't do the right thing. <laughs> not like you, Brother Glenn. I, I did the wrong thing. It's not, it's not a lack of knowledge. It's a lack of our, in ourselves, we don't find our salvation. It's only in Christ. So the Christian life is not about the rules, it's about life in Christ. And Paul argues that godliness is not achieved through asceticism, but through our identification with Christ. The Colossians were led to believe it's by following external rules that holiness comes. And if they don't follow the rules, then they need harsh discipline until they do follow the rules. Paul ends with three things. or He ends with, number one, these have an appearance of wisdom. But they only have an illusion of being pious, an illusion of being holy, an illusion of being humble. And he says they lack any value in truly restraining sensual indulgence. You can do these things all day long, but they lack any value. So what's his answer? Well, we definitely can't go into it, and we're going to move on. But read chapter 3. His answer in chapter 3 is, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And set your minds on things above not on things of the earth. Verse 3 of chapter 3, For you died. That's the key. You died. He says in Romans, Consider yourself dead to sin and alive unto God. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And He is the answer that you're seeking. In Him is all wisdom. And then Paul goes on to give, here's how it's like to live in Christ. 
He's not giving, even though it appears, and you can pull them out and make them seem that way, he's not giving another list of rules. He's giving what comes out of a life that has died with Christ and has been raised with Christ. So he tells them to seek the higher form of life that you have in Jesus, not giving in to these earthly rules based upon regulations and human traditions and mystical experiences and Jewish laws. Have your life based in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone.